Lord, you are just that. You are our Lord. You are the one who governs and guides our lives. And so, Father, we just come before you to submit ourselves before you, Lord, that you would teach us and instruct us one more time. Lord, as our hope is in you, I pray, Father, that would be expressed through obedience to the call and commands that you've given us in our lives. So we just lift up our Bible study tonight that once again you would bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Greetings. Greetings. Good evening. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be picking up at verse 21. Tonight we're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification. Um, We have been studying through 2 Chronicles, but I just thought it would be a good time to just do kind of a topical twist as we enter into the resurrection season to understand the magnitude of the work that the Lord has accomplished upon the cross. Now the Apostle Paul has been speaking of really the depravity of man up until this time. But then there's that time when God enters into the equation. If you look at verse 21, it starts out with saying, but now, as of today, and we know that to be because of the death, but also the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many people here have a computer, a PC or whatever? Pretty much everybody, I'm sure. Now, when you go and set it up, and I usually am the one who set up the computers here at the church when we get new ones, there's a lot to be done. It takes about a half a day to get everything installed on it and the whole deal. Once you turn it on for the very first time, there's this program that's usually installed on them and you have to do a subscription or whatever. And a lot of the computers nowadays just come this way. But it's a program that runs behind the scene. It's that antivirus program. You deal with it when you first set up your computer, and then you don't really pay much attention to it afterwards. You're going along, and you're surfing the internet, and you're doing your Word documents, whatever it is that you do, and you're just not mindful of that that's behind the scenes. And behind the scenes, it's doing the work. It's filtering everything out. It's making sure that no harm comes to your computer. It's watching over your sessions on the computer because there's hackers out there. There's many people that want to see your computer or want to do your computer harm. Well, as far as the Lord, we saw at the very beginning, alluded alluded to it this morning, but in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God, and God had been working behind the scenes. He's given such rich prophecies. He's given us such great promises, and these things are constantly working in our lives. And even we can take God for granted or just not once again be aware of of all that he's doing, but he's still there, and he's always working because there is this virus that is called sin. And so in the beginning, before time, before angels, before creation, before mankind, before sin or even salvation, God. God has been doing a work. And so the Apostle Paul, as I said before, had been looking at the depravity man in chapters 1 through 2 in the book of Romans, and we have saw the depth of that depravity. And so we saw that mankind, mankind is lost apart from God, and he's only able to grope for God in the dark, but never able to find God apart from the revelation of God as God reveals himself and how God has revealed himself to mankind. And so the Apostle Paul, as he goes through and he examines certain mindsets and thoughts, what he's doing is he's just hammering the lid shut on man's coffin as he goes into the depths of the depravity of man. And just before it's lowered into the grave, Paul, well, 
Paul reveals in, in verse 21, but now, but now the righteousness of God. There, there's one last chance, there's one last hope for mankind. Because what Paul's been doing, he's had this parenthetical thought that has been going on. In chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20, in verse 18 of chapter 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the idea is, he starts looking at pagan thought. And you see how deprived that is. Moral thought, as man believes that he can be good in the sight of mankind, but there is none good, no, not one. Religious thought, and if you want to approach God according to religion, well, first you're going to have to make the determination what religion you're going to do so. But religion is really man's way of reaching up to God because God is all about relationship. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23 through 26 thus says the lord let not the wise man glory in his wisdom let not the mighty man glory in his might nor let the rich man glory in his riches but let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me this is god speaking through the prophet that i am the lord exercising loving kindness judgment and righteousness in the earth for in these i delight says the lord Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are uncircumcised with the circumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. And so again, it's about that relationship. It's about having that heart for God and the things of God. And so again, the Apostle Paul, he looks at these various areas of mankind. It's as he's looking over all of humanity and he sees these various areas in which man tries to make these determinations on how he can be right because the Holy Spirit, as we saw in John chapter 19, continues to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it just penetrates the heart of mankind. And as this reality, the work of the Holy Spirit, penetrates the heart of mankind, man seeks after the Lord. And as I referred to earlier, and as Paul spoke in Acts chapter 17, the best man can do apart from the Word of God is grope in the dark. But unfortunately with that, you have all these different mindsets and all of these different ideas that are very contrary to God and God's word. And so, as I said before, the Apostle Paul, back in chapter 3, verse 9, he's hammering the lid closed on the coffin of all of mankind. Actually, verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, or man cannot offer an excuse, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so again, Paul just makes his point, and it's as if he is hammering the lid shut on the coffin of all of mankind. But just before that lid is sealed and man is lowered into the grave for all of eternity, it's as if he cries out, such as we see in various places in the scriptures. In Luke chapter 3, it was the multitudes. John chapter 6, it was the crowd. Matthew 19, it was the rich young ruler. Acts chapter 2, it was those who were listening to the apostle Peter's sermon. Saul said to Jesus in Acts 22, and the Philippian jailer asked in Acts chapter 16, what must I do? And that's the cry of all of humanity. All of humanity that comes face to face with their mortality. 
what must I do? Man who has to face his conscience and understand that something's not right, there's something wrong, as he's being convicted again that he's a sinner of righteousness because God is truly righteous and of judgment that one day he's going to have to stand before a holy God and give an account of himself. What must I do? It must be the last thought of everybody who closes their eyes in this world for the final time. What must I do to be justified or to be right before a holy God? In Job chapter 9, verse 2, it's the same thing he contemplated, but how can a man be righteous before God? Because all of those who have tried through pagan means, through moral means and religious means, found out or came to the realization that there's something missing and we are very far from God. And so even the religious system that had been installed by God, the law, again, verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So it was never the purpose of the law to make man right in the sight of God, but to reveal how far mankind is from being right before a holy God. There is none who are able to keep the law. The only one who ever has is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the idea is Paul has been hammering nail after nail after nail. He's bringing all of humanity to the point of despair, that there's nothing that we're able to do, and, and it's so bleak and it's so dark. But it's as if just before the dirt is now being thrown upon that coffin, that God peels back the lid. And then he offers his hand. Again, verse 20. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is what the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, speaks of the Old Testament. This is what it was always pointing towards. There was the knowledge of sin because of the law, and we see the futility, or man experienced his own futility trying to keep it. But now Christ has been revealed. Remember, it's that expression of love that God has given to all of mankind to which he draws mankind unto himself. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we're going to be looking at this coming weekend as we continue on in Thursday night in Psalm 22 is that message of the cross or that picture of the cross given even 600 years before crucifixion came as a means of execution. And God went through in detail what was going on. And as we saw in our study, that this was really the interaction between father and son as Christ was taking the sins of the world upon himself. This coming Thursday, we're going to see that turning point of victory. On Friday, we're going to look at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ as he did take those sins upon him. And really what he was taking upon him was our punishment. But he emerged victorious and we have a new beginning as Easter Sunday as we look at the resurrected Lord and the great hope that we have before us. Remember, faith, faith is trusting in God for today. And if you're a born-again believer, you've exercised faith. By grace, you've been saved through faith and you are, have peace with God because of that. But your great hope is still on the Lord Jesus Christ. The same God that raised him from the dead will raise you from the dead as well. And again, that was man's, well, that was the greatest enemy of mankind was death. But Jesus has been able to overcome that. He emerged victorious. And because he emerged victorious, we have victory over that great enemy. But now, but now, Well, when Paul wrote it back then, but for us today, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, maybe to paraphrase that, apart from trying to keep the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law in the prophets. This is the exact point that Paul was making, and we looked at this again on Thursday night, but it bears visiting again in Ephesians chapter 2. It speaks of our past, it speaks of our present, and it speaks of our future. As far as mankind's past and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins. You were spiritually dead in the sight of God. And once you once walked according to the course of the world, we, we lived our lives according to how those who were contrary to God told us we were to live our lives. According to the prince of the power of the air, they were under the sway of the wicked one, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling 
following the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, just as the others who will be condemned. So once again, a picture of who you, everybody here, us all, who we used to be in the sight of God. But now there's the present, but God. Again, there's that amazing turning point as God enters into the equation, as God peers into humanity. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Just as Christ died and was resurrected, we will one day die, but we will also be resurrected as well, barring rapture of the church. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. And then verse 7 speaks of the age to come, the future, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When we were in the presence of God in that future time, we are going to be examples of the love and the grace of God. There's not going to be a one of us who is able to work our way in or even deserve to be in the presence of God for all of eternity. But because of the grace of God and the great love with which he has bestowed upon mankind, we'll be there. We have the word of God. We have the promises of God. It's a surety that God gives to all of those who call him Lord. And so once again, either Ephesians chapter 2, but God, or here, Back in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, that word but, one of God's great turning points in his revealing of how he deals with mankind in the midst of a hopeless and helpless situation. Again, looking at your computer. Every once in a while, as I said, that program works behind the scenes, but it will pop up. One of them popped up on my computer the other day. Virus detected. And I'm reminded that that's there and that that's always working. And God, we see how he, if you will, pops up. He pops up in our lives as he ministers to us, but especially as we see someone saved, as we see a life altered, as we see somebody's life changed. And it's the blessing that we have, a reminder that God's there and and God's not silent. And God moves in the lives of men and women just as surely as he moved in your life on the day of your salvation. He moves in the lives of others just as he continues to work in your life today. He continues to work in the lives of others. And again, we can look at the world situation today and think, what in the world is going on? But as my wife likes to say, things aren't out of control. Things are falling into place. We see how looking at end-time prophecies and so on, God's hand is upon the situation. Never lose hope in that. Never cease trusting in God in that. Back in verse 21, but now, but now denotes a change in time that results in a change of history. And to paraphrase verse 21, let me read it first. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The idea is you who are destined for the eternal grave now have hope in God as he has entered in to change your condition, to soothe your situation, to position you for paradise. God has done this great work. As our works were nothing in the sight of God, the Bible tells us they were as filthy rags. This is the glory of God, the work that he has done for all of humanity. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so what I want to look at is the change that God has brought about in our lives because we have been justified. We have been made right in the sight of God. Keep in mind, justification, you are now seen just as if you have never sinned. Understand the magnitude of that. One sin is enough to separate us from all of eternity from a holy God. And God, because of the great work with which he has done, by grace you have been saved, he now chooses to see us just as if we have never sinned. He has chosen to see us just as he sees his son. What has changed? Well, you have gone from receiving wrath to receiving forgiveness. 
It's the contrast of man's situation, again, seen in Romans, again, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Well, Paul, when he gets to chapter 3, says we are all ungodly and unrighteous. But then we enter into verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. And so the revelation of who we are, but now the revelation of who God is and what God has done. And so this should cause us to truly rejoice the magnitude of the forgiveness of God. God's forgiveness is complete. God's forgiveness is total. God's forgiveness, and it's important to understand, is supernatural. And what I mean by that, this is a complete and total work of the Lord that supersedes anything that we are able to do. God's forgiveness goes back from the first day that I exited my mother's womb to the last day to I close my eyes on my deathbed. It's able to overcome anything I've ever said and anything I've ever done. It covers all of my transgressions and it goes deep into my heart but also into the soul of God and that he has chosen to remember my sins no more. And just think of the relief that that is because we've been convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And there's the guilt But the magnitude of the forgiveness of God, it releases all of humanity from our guilt. And a matter of fact, the scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, we are able to enter in boldly into the throne room of God. Now just think, if you were called into the throne room of God, there will be those who are, um, yes, in Revelation chapter 20, it's called the great white throne judgment. And as we saw here in verse 19 of Romans chapter 3, there's no excuse that man, every mouth is going to be stopped. Man's not going to be able to offer an excuse. And so you can imagine the guilt as he goes into the throne room, and you can imagine the despair as he's condemned for all of eternity. But you're a child of God. You're just as guilty as those people were, but you have been supernaturally forgiven. God has chosen to see you just as if you have never sinned. And so what we're told by the writer of Hebrews, you can boldly enter in. You could enter in void of the guilt. You can enter in void of despair and in full confidence in the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that just is, well, it's a miracle, but it's also amazing. The truth that is suppressed in righteousness, what is that all about? Well, again, it speaks of our sin, and it speaks of how man tries to cover sin apart from that total forgiveness of God, probably best expressed by Adam. Adam, he he sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, And the eyes of both of them, of Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The idea is they could see that they were sinners. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Genesis 3.21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. I taught Genesis at the Bible College, the first part of this year, actually the last part of of last year, and we went through all this in detail, and um, one of the things that we saw was just Adam and, and the conviction of sin. He's hiding in bushes. He's covered himself with these fig leaves. The Bible doesn't say what the fruit tree was that they ate from. We don't know what the fruit is. For some reason, the apple got a bad rap here, but I really believe, and it just makes so much sense to me that it was a fig tree because there they are. They're just, just you know, when you're guilty as sin, You just feel that people can just even see it in your face. Well, there's Adam, and he's covered with fig leaves. And just think of how ridiculous he would look in the sight of God. Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. He was hiding in the trees covered with fig leaves. And Adam comes up, and here he is, and he's trying to point at this woman, this woman whom you gave me. She made me do this. And there she is. She's covered in fig leaves. She's covered in her sin as well. And and this is man's way of trying to deal with this situation. But really what he does, when man tries to deal with his own sin, he's just revealed as a greater sinner. Why is that? Because we know how this all works out. It's all about the rejection of Jesus Christ and us trying to make ourselves as our own Savior. But then God tells him, you need a proper covering. 
And we've looked at this before, but in our study this morning, and I spoke about this at the convalescent home yesterday as well, all of those lambs that were brought into Jerusalem during the Passover, or for the Passover, during Jesus' triumphal entry. All of those lambs without spot that are being brought in, in the midst of it, there's the Lord, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And here, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, again, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. Adam named all of these animals. Adam had a relationship, if you will, with them, just as we would with, with a pet. And God's telling him, because you have sinned, that, that the fig leaf is insufficient. That, that was a bad idea, Adam. But here, this is what is necessary. And keep it in mind, up until that point, nothing has died. Have you experienced at least the death of an animal, but even harder, a death of a human being? Death is just an absolute ugly thing. It's just a definite ugly thing. And so here's Adam, who probably, I can't imagine, he didn't even know what death was. And here, well, God's providing him these tunics, and the only way to get the skin off an animal is to kill the animal. And so can you imagine the absolute terror as Adam sees this animal killed and comes to the realization, this happened because of me? And, and, and that's how it was to follow through with all of the sacrifices that were offered. Remember, as the sacrifices, the burnt offering or the sin offering, you put your hands upon that animal and figuratively your sin goes from you to that animal. And then that animal is killed because, well, a human sacrifice is an unclean thing. And so Adam, Adam came to the realization of the magnitude of the sin that he has committed and the cost. And we have to understand that we have gone from wrath to receiving forgiveness, that we were due that death that was to come upon every sacrifice all the way through to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As Jesus was upon that cross, it should have been us. Secondly, we have gone from being condemned to being justified. Again, verses 22 through 24 even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Since God has condemned all of mankind apart from him, Paul now tells us that all of mankind can now be justified through faith. We are told here, any man that approaches God according to his own righteousness, according to he is or what he's able to do, that man will receive condemnation. It doesn't matter who you are or what your abilities are. But we're also told here, any man that approaches God according to God's righteousness, because that's the only way man can, can approach a holy God, is based upon his grace, is based upon his righteousness. So... If you were like me, I was religious my life. Every single Sunday, pretty much all of my life, I went to church. I didn't really participate in it. I didn't understand it. I didn't really know, and I really didn't care. But I was there. That was my righteousness. My righteousness was that I was a member of this denomination, and I made an appearance every Sunday for about an hour, and that was it. But I was just as lost as lost can be. What was my plan as far as eternity and salvation was to stand before God and tell him the denomination that I was part of and that I went to church every single Sunday. But deep in my heart, I knew that that wasn't going to get it. That wasn't going to have my sins dealt with. So again, there was that conviction. I was planning on approaching God according to my own righteousness. But I knew that my sinful nature... My sinful nature condemned me. I knew that I was due judgment. But mankind, we can approach God according to his righteousness, according to his grace, and according to his mercy. And the good thing about that is, that opens the door for all of humanity. Whoever will call upon the Lord will be saved. Because again, it's not about works of righteousness, which I have done, which, which we have done. Because if it was about works of righteousness that we have done, I may be able to do better works of righteousness than you. And I'll be more right in the sight of God than you could ever be, or, or vice versa. But 
man, and we see how that came to fruition during Jesus' day with the Pharisees and their, their self-righteousness. That's an unclean thing in the sight of God. It's God's righteousness that we're able to approach God. What do I mean by approach God? Approach God in prayer. Come before the Lord as his child to approach God through his word, to be able to hear from him, to approach God to understand and know that the hand of God is upon me, that he's watching over me and caring, caring for me, to approaching God on the day of my death in full confidence that my life is hidden with Christ. It's, again, to have that faith for today and that hope for tomorrow. Justified, one who has been declared innocent in a court of law and can never be uh, retried for the same crime. He is seen as being justified. Now, we are not innocent, but Christ has made us that way in the sight of a holy God. And so again, as Jesus was upon that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the separation that sin brings as it's placed upon him. How did he deal with it? He dealt with it when he died, but when he came back to life, that was the proof that he had overcome because the wages of sin is death. But what happens when somebody dies because sin, sin is the cause of death, but then they come back to life? The only way that could be possible is that they've overcome the bondage of sin. And so Jesus emerged victorious. Because he emerged victorious, we in him are able to emerge victorious over our sinful nature as well. Thirdly, we have gone from being in bondage to obtaining freedom, verses 24 through 25. Being justified freely. When it says justified freely, that's without any cost whatsoever. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. The doctrine of redemption. From a Hebrew perspective, God made certain laws. As we've gone through the book of Leviticus, as we've gone through Exodus and Deuteronomy, we saw the certain laws that God had made for society, and the idea is so that people would not be held captive. A Jew could redeem a family member or family property so that the integrity of the family and their place that God had given them, their land that God had given them, would be able to remain in the family. To, from a Greek perspective, redemption is to pay the price for a slave with the intent of setting him free. Remember, if you're old as me, remember blue chip stamps? You would go to the gas station and they would give you, what, a page? I, I don't really remember because it's been quite a while. You get a page of blue pin stamps and your mother would throw them in a drawer and then one day she says, yeah, okay, all you kids come here, sit at the table, we're going to glue all the blue chip stamps and they would give you these books. And, and so they have these catalogs, which is what w would be an internet today, but you know, back then it was a, a catalog. And you would look in the catalog, and I remember I wanted a fishing pole. My dad was a big fisherman. I wanted to be like my dad. And my mom gave us all turns of redeeming the blue chip stamps. See, most people, I guess, or a lot of people would throw them away, but you could redeem them because there was value there. There wasn't much value in one, but you put them together, and you put them in this book. And I remember we went down to the blue chip place. It was kind of like this warehouse thing. And we redeemed them, and, and I got my fishing pole. But... It's the same thing for, for us. We were headed for destruction. Another 60 illustration. Remember the soda bottles? You can, can uh, collect the soda bottles. You get a nickel, I think, for the smaller ones, 16 ounce. And for the big quart ones, you get a dime. And, and, and that which was destined for the trash heap, you could take down to the local liquor store or 7... We didn't have 7-Elevens back there. We had a TikTok market. And you could take it and you could get money for those things. And they were redeemed. That which was headed for destruction. There was value in that. Not everybody saw the value. A lot of people would throw them out. A lot of people would smash them, whatever. But you, you bring it in, and, and there's value. God saw the value in you. And again, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God looks through all of that. And he saw the value in who you are and who you have created to be. And he wanted you. And he had a desire for you. And he sent his son to die on the cross so that you would not head, if you will, to the trash heap, but you would be redeemed. 
You who were headed for destruction at one point in your life, Christ came. That was that but God moment. And he changed your heart and your soul and he's brought you into his family. And you need to see this. You made the choice and all that, sure, but you need to see that this was an absolute work of God. I don't know why I came into the family of God other than it was a work of God and he displayed himself to me in an undeniable way. He displayed myself to me in an undeniable way and I came into God's kingdom and I don't know why he was so gracious to me, but he was. And it's the same thing for you. You need to take possession of that because you were headed for destruction. You were headed for eternity apart from a holy God but he redeemed you and brought you into his family. Again, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. In First Peter, he kind of expands on this, chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. The idea is that means absolutely nothing in the sight of God. Silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained, that means it was his purpose, from the foundation of the world before creation, but was manifest in, or revealed in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised, excuse me, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The precious blood of Jesus Christ refers to the precious death of Jesus Christ. Because Christ died, he took sin upon himself and he paid the price for that sin. It's because of that that he could offer salvation to all of mankind. Salvation is free, but salvation is not cheap. You were purchased at a horrible price. Once again, God made the determination because of the condition of man that something had to happen. And it's something, since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, this can only be a work of God. God made the decision that he was going to come and come amongst men because it's the only way that mankind would be able to relate to God. And so he sent his son. The idea is, is that Christ came in a way that we would be able to comprehend a holy God. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the means by which we're able to understand who our holy God is. And so he came amongst men being fully God, but also fully man. And he revealed himself and revealed the will of God to us so that we would live and we would have life and life more abundantly. The blood of Christ isn't so much about the fluid blood, but it refers to the death of the sacrifice. Jesus was without blemish and without spot. He was perfect himself, but he took our sins so that we would be seen as perfect as well. It's his nature. The price of freedom has always been blood. We need to remember this as we sit in church, as we eat dinner, as we go about our life, that men and women have died for the rights that we have in this nation. This Tuesday night, we're gathering together uh, for pray, uh, not praise and worship, for uh, prayer and fasting. But at 6.30, you can keep me in prayer if you think about it, I'm going to be doing the invocation at the city hall. And one of the things I like to remind them about as we're praying, that there are people right now in foreign lands fighting. And they very well could be fighting for their life at that very moment. Americans are killed every year fighting for freedom or trying to maintain freedom. And, and the price of freedom has always, as we look at the annuals of history, it's always been the blood of those who's willing to stand up for what is good and what is right. Even as we have this opportunity right now, nobody's going to come bursting through the doors. We have the freedom that has been delivered to us from those who have gone before us. But we also must remember as we sit in church, as we eat our dinner, go about our, our, our lives, Jesus died for our liberty as well. He died to have that, that, that terrible fiend guilt removed from our lives so that we can enjoy God, that we can enjoy the life and the people that he has given us. There's going to be persecution. There's no doubt about all of that. But nonetheless, God has given us this blessed life that we're able to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Verse 25, Jesus, whom God set forth as propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Propitiation, 
That's a price paid to appease anger. Why were previously committed sins passed over? So that the cross would stand out and grace would reign. What do I mean by previous committed sins that were passed over? Notice the very first time that you sinned, God didn't destroy you. But God strove with mankind. It's called God's venial grace. That's the grace that God gives all of humanity as they are apart from God, giving them time to repent and come to that right relationship with him. That's the blessings that the world has because of the church. Understand, the world despises us, but they don't understand the magnitude of the goodness that they have in this life because of our existence. There's going to come a time, we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that we're removed from this world. And the world is going to think that it's a great thing. But then they're going to have tribulation as they have never had tribulation before. The Antichrist will be revealed and the things we see talked about in the book of Revelation will come upon them. But Jesus, Jesus is the propitiation or the price paid to appease anger. God, as he was angry at sin, he didn't judge us because he was waiting for that day of our salvation or gave us time for that day of our salvation. Fourthly, we have gone from our unrighteousness to God's righteousness. Why God's righteousness? Well, since God is judge, I want him to be the source of what he will judge. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 8, Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. The essence of God's righteousness is perfection. That means it's simply without flaw. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin or without flaw. Thirdly, God's righteousness is eternal. Isaiah 51.8 For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But God says, But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. And so, what do you want to depend upon the last days? Works of righteousness which you have done are works of righteousness which God has done. The work of righteousness which Christ has done is the cross because God in his holiness made the determination that that's what was necessary for all of humanity. And we see this illustrated in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment. Those who will be standing before that great white throne judgment will be doing so apart from Christ. And as they are standing there, we're told that the sea is going to give up its dead. And so all of humanity, from all of history, those who are part from a relationship with Christ or trust in the promised Messiah, the Old Testament saints, they won't be there, but all those who are part from Christ will be there. And we're told that the Lamb's book of life was open. That's those, the listing of those, if you will, who've trusted in the righteousness of Christ. And those who stand before that great white throne... Their names will be looked at in the Lamb's Book of Life, and their name's not going to be there. Now, all of this is happening because God is just, and their name's not there. So then it says other books will be opened. What are the other books? The other books are their works of righteousness to see if they measure up to the standard. But the problem is nobody is able to. And we're told that all of those, well, we know, Romans chapter 3, verse 19, their mouth will be stopped they're going to understand the magnitude of their guilt. And we're told that they're going to be cast into outer darkness. But it's not so with us. For us, to be absent from the body, either rapture or death, is to be present with the Lord. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed or freed us from our sins in his own blood, he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And so again, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Jesus' death was that which appeased the anger of the Father by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or God's tolerance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. God gave us that opportunity for that day of our salvation. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So then Paul just continues to say in verse 27, where is the boasting then? The idea is we have nothing to boast of. Matter of fact, we should be humbled because of this. Is excluded by the law of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And isn't that a blessing? You are made right in the sight of God, not by what you're able to do or what you're able to accomplish, but what Christ has accomplished for you already. By faith, you just enter into what Christ has done. Good Friday, Good Friday was so good. Why would it be so good? Because that was the day that my sins were dealt with. And we have the new life of what we call Easter Sunday. And why is that so glorious? Because Jesus has been resurrected, the proof that he overcame sin for mankind. And just as surely as he lived, because of that, we have eternal life in him. Today, if you're a born-again believer, you are seen by God just as if you have never sinned. Embrace that. Glory in that. And thank God for that every day of your life. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for God, just these things. And, and, and man can file these under theology or whatever it might be, but it's just reality. It's just these things that you have displayed to all of humanity so that we would understand, so that we would know the magnitude of what you have done. And Father, I pray that we would embrace it. Yeah, we're imperfect people. There's no doubt about that. But Lord, you have made us perfect in your sight. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people who rejoice. I pray, Father, that even this closing song, we would sing with all of our heart based upon all that you have done. And so, Father, we just thank you for this evening. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us in our resolve to be obedient to you as we study these things. And, Father, we would just simply go out and tell others what you have done. Lord, I lift up those who have come out tonight. I pray that you would bless them, keep them, go before them. Father, I pray for this coming week, our time of prayer and fasting, that you would enable us in these things and that, God, we would just lift up the great work that you want to do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? In the, ske- in the bulletin, we have a, a uh, handout as far as fasting. This coming week, we are doing a week of prayer and fasting. We're going to be lifting up the work that God wants to do this coming Sunday. As I said this morning, our church pretty much doubles on Easter Sunday. So we have opportunity and people who usually aren't at church to preach the word of God and prayerfully see some saved. And so we give ourselves to prayer and fasting. We're going to be meeting here every day of the week next week at 7 o'clock. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're going to get together for the purpose of prayer. Thursday, we're going to be back in Psalm 22. Friday, we're going to have a Good Friday service with communion. And then Easter Sunday, it's going to be a little bit different. We have services at 8.30 and 11 o'clock. We have no evening service on Easter Sunday. We're canceling our evening service on Easter Sunday. So just pray. Pray how God wants to use you. Pray for the salvation of those who are lost. God bless you guys. Have a great week. That you would be mindful of us What do you see That's worth looking our way We are free In ways that we never should be Sweet relief from the grip of these chains Like hinges straining from the weight My heart no longer can keep from singing All that is within me cries For you alone be glorified Emmanuel God with us
don't deserve your glory, still you show a love we cannot afford. Like hinges straining from the weight, my heart no longer can keep from singing. All that is within me cries for you alone. Be glorified, Emmanuel, God with us. My heart sings a brand new song. The dead is paid, these chains are gone, Emmanuel. God with us Such a tiny offering Compared to Calvary But nevertheless We lay it at your feet Such a tiny offering Compared to Calvary your feet, all that is within me cries, for you alone be glorified, Emmanuel, God with us, my heart sings a brand new song, the dead is paid. Chains are gone, Emmanuel. God with us. Such a tiny offering compared to Calvary, but nevertheless, we laid at your feet. Good evening. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful evening, wonderful week. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you guys later. <laughs> Something like that.